Hi, this is David Flowers, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Can you think of a time when you experienced something so wonderful, so meaningful, so beautiful that you wished that you could just stay in that moment forever? Have you ever experienced that? Raise your hand if you've ever experienced something like that, okay? Or at least maybe you felt like, could I, if I, I could just press pause on this moment, just for a few hours, I mean, that would be great. I know I've felt that way several times in my life. I've, I've experienced that while in the Rocky Mountains. I experienced that at the birth of both of our sons. Uh, a time or two at Christmas, sitting in the living room with the family. Uh, at a concert, or while on a hike along the AT or even while praying a few times. Music accompanied several of those experiences. Maybe you are familiar with that as well. But again, these moments, they're always fleeting moments, aren't they? This is why Tom Wright says, beauty, like justice, slips through our fingers. It slips through our fingers. The world is full of beauty but it's incomplete. Think about this. We can take a picture of the sunset with our smartphone. We can gaze at the mountain. We can look up in awe at a starry night sky. We can look into the eyes of a precious, innocent child and our heart just melt. But all is left is a memory, if that. If that, right? We don't get to keep it or, or carry around the moment itself and continue to live in it. It doesn't last. It fades. Just like our youth, our good looks, and our loved ones, the beauty fades. Now, if you're a good husband, you're going to lean over to your wife right now and say, your beauty never fades, honey. <laughs> I'm here to help, okay? I'm just here to help. Now you understand why Peter, James, and John wanted to stay with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They wanted it to last. They wanted it to last. We all want the beauty and the glory to last, don't we? But it doesn't. Why is that? It's because beauty is yet another broken signpost which points us beyond this world to the eternal God who made it. Or as the poet Robert Frost once wrote, nothing gold can stay. That is, of course, until the maker of all good things, as Paul said, clothes us with immortality in this perishable world with eternal light. Until then, beauty is a signpost to the infinite God and to new creation. And think about this with me. Truth, goodness, 
and beauty. Truth, goodness, and beauty. Uh, These are the three prime virtues that ancient Greek philosophers believed were inherent to life and the human experience, which means that they believe these virtues are not subjective, but objective. Objective. It wasn't just Greek philosophers that believed in truth, goodness, and beauty. The early church did as well. The early Christian theologians believed that objectivity of these virtues were found within the transcendent God himself. It's not just a matter of perspective or opinion. We live in this postmodern age where truth is, is, is uh, relative, right? It's, that's your truth. This is my truth. Truth is relative. And so is, so is goodness and beauty. So we've got to root it in some objectivity, something outside of ourselves, outside of our world to God himself. There is something eternal about truth, goodness, and beauty. In other words, truth, goodness, and beauty are objective virtues because the living God is true, good, and beautiful. And that is what we mean when we say that God is good. You're, you've, you've heard that, right? God is good, and you're supposed to say all the time, God is good. This is why we say that. It's why Jesus said, I am the truth, right? I'm the way, I'm the truth and the life. And it's where there is is such a thing as as beauty. It's why there is such a thing as beauty that stirs us and moves us in our soul. Because the creator God is beautiful. In Revelation 4, when the, the veil between heaven and earth is lifted. I want you to think of it that way. In, in Revelation chapter 4, John's vision of heaven is, is as if the veil of the curtain between heaven and earth was lifted. And John describes what he saw in the throne room of God. He says this in Revelation 4 verse 3. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian, And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. So get this picture. John is looking at the throne of God and this light is coming from the throne and he sees it in this magnificent color. Now, what are are the meanings of these gemstones? There is some uh, debate about this, but the consensus seems to be that this jasper this jasper can come in many different colors, but this jasper is, is a clear jasper signifying God's purity and holiness, the bright light of his love. And carnelian is this reddish color. It almost looks like inside there's a fire burning, which seems to indicate God's wrath that burns against sin, but also Jesus' blood that covers our sins. And then there's emerald like the Emerald City in the Wizard of Oz, right? Just a a soothing color, symbolic of God's faithfulness to his covenant. And and don't don't miss this. John says it like a rainbow. Remember in the Old Testament, the rainbow is a symbol of God's mercy. God, because God is merciful and compassionate. And of course, all these gemstones were included on the breastplate of the high priest in the tabernacle. These gemstones are a picture of the beauty of God that shines out from the throne of God. And this beautiful God who sits on the throne in heaven has given us evidence, 
evidence of His glory on the earth. Listen to what the psalm says, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. The heavens declare, they proclaim the glory of God. The skies display His craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Don't miss what David is saying in this psalm about the glory of God. He is saying words aren't always needed, nor can they do justice to the beauty of God. No, sometimes, sometimes it's just visio divina, sacred seeing as we reflect on the beauty and the glory of God. Let's think a, a bit more about this glory of God business. And T. Wright says this in his book, Broken Sign Post, he said, glory in that first line of the psalm there is kavod. The, the normal Hebrew word that serves as a catch-all for the weighty and the awesome, but also stunningly beautiful presence of God. It then comes to refer to anything and everything that reflects or embodies that strange, powerful, hard to pin down and sense of something more, something greater, something more intimate than what you would get from a chemical or mathematical analysis. And so the glory of God is, is revealed in beauty. It's revealed in beauty and it's meant to lead us home into union with the divine. Remember, though God wasn't content on revealing his glory through created things with our material universe. Instead, as we've been hearing from John in this series, God sent his only begotten son from heaven to embody his presence and glory on the earth. Listen again to John chapter 1, verse 14. He says, the word, the logos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus is stunningly, he's the stunningly beautiful presence of God with us. Jesus is the something more. He is the something greater. He is that something or someone more intimate and wondrous that all of our fleeting moments of beauty are pointing. This is what I hear John saying. And this Jesus, John says, is the one by whom God the Father created all things. All things, they are the work of Jesus' hands. Again, listen to another song of David. You can turn there or just listen as I read from Psalm chapter 8. David says, Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemies, to silence the foe and the avenger through the praise of children and infants. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is humankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them, yet you've made them a little lower than the angels and you've crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and you put everything under their feet, all flocks, herds, animals of the wild, birds in the sky, fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, 
How majestic is your name in all the earth. And so God, listen to what he says, crowned humanity with glory, made us to reflect his beauty on the earth. Just as God set apart Bezalel in Exodus 36 as an artist and craftsman to make beautiful things in the, t- in the tabernacle, so we have been called to be filled with the Spirit as artists and proclaimers of his goodness and the work that he's given us to do. As the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship. We are God's artistry created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That word there in Greek for workmanship is poema, which we get our word poem. In other words, we are God's poem for the world. Get that image. This is a beautiful image. That's all of us. Whether you see yourself as a poet or not, we are God's best. We are his work of art. And we're hardwired for creativity and beauty. So think about that. Neuroscientists, they're learning that the brain is stimulated by beauty, art, and music. There's a discipline called neuroesthetics. Neuroesthetics that probes the relationship between art and the brain. And it's been proven that beauty and art does a few things for us. It reduces stress. It improves your focus. It helps you to process emotions. It improves communication skills, and it aids us in imagining a more hopeful future. This is what beauty and art can do, just a few of the things. And it turns out that the arts and beauty making is part of what it means to be a healthy and whole person. Clearly, God has designed our minds for logic and reason, but also for feeling and emotions. I think Spock eventually learned that lesson, for you Star Trek fans. You see, but when we don't yield to the Holy Spirit, we unfortunately use our brains and our bodies in dehumanizing ways, sometimes even calling that art. What are we to do, though? What are we to do with this fact? One of my favorite science fiction films, you know I'm a sci-fi fan, In a not-so-distant future, we try to suppress all human emotions. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Equilibrium. Again, it's one of my favorites, starring Christian Bale, uh, Ty Diggs, Emily Watson, and Sean Bean is in this movie as well. The setting is after a third world war that almost destroyed the planet, it was decided by the totalitarian leader of the new city of Libria to suppress all human emotion with a powerful drug called prosium so that humans had no extreme highs and no extreme lows. And of course, the thinking is, if you can do that, well, you can get rid of the badness that's in us and in our world. In addition, everything that is intended to evoke feeling is abolished. Art, literature, poetry, music, even color is abolished. And Christian Bale's character, John Preston is his name, belongs to a group called the Clerics, (laughs) a Gestapo-like police force that's commissioned to destroy what is left of the sense offenders, they call them, and their illegal emotion-inducing materials. 
And Preston is leading the effort until one day he misses a dose on accident and he begins feeling for the first time himself. As he begins to feel, he gets curious. He then intentionally skips a dose and his feelings grow even stronger. Uh, During one raid, Preston discovers a hidden room that was full of color. It was full of art and pictures and poetry and even music. He'd never heard music before. Can you imagine that? Never to have heard music? Hmm. He'd never heard it until he began to play a record. And it just so happened to be Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the first movement. And President is so moved that he begins to cry and curiously he falls into a prayerful pose. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Soon after he, that, he feels compassion when he sees his fellow clerics shooting dogs, including puppies. You can see him there holding it as it started to get away. He grabs it and it's just locked onto the eyes of this puppy. And you could see it come all over him, the, a feeling he had never felt before. And then the next morning he wakes up. This is sort of his epiphany moment, his awakening, his baptism, as he sees the light coming through his window. But they had put over the windows, in case you might see something beautiful, a a film that caused a, a fuzziness and a fog. But yet he could see the light breaking through the window. He rushes to the window and he begins to claw at it, tearing off the film. And he just begins to cry as he's overwhelmed by the moment of the light coming up this sunrise. Eventually, Preston, in messianic fashion, leads an uprising and overthrows the evil regime. Now, this movie was made over 20 years ago, if you can believe that. At that time, we've seen uh, quite a shift in dystopian TV shows and movies. Most of them, and I think if, if you're aware of some of these, they don't have happy endings. They don't have happy endings. Wright believes it's, it's because we're now living within a society that is losing hope. And it's reacting against a sentimentalism, against a dreamy fantasy. And in doing so, our culture has swung around to embrace brutalism. And there is a nihilism about this prevailing mood, and Wright calls it a kind of death worship. And we can see this today through the increase in dark, violent, dystopian future TV shows and movies. Maybe you recognize some of them. Have you noticed this uptick in the darkness? Have you noticed the uptick in the hopelessness And what I'm wondering is how some of us can watch this and wonder why we're so depressed. (laughs) Maybe there are certainly some lessons to learn in some of these shows. I'm not approaching this as a fundamentalist and say, you know, never watch a rated R movie or anything that has darkness in it. But look at the common thread. Look at what is happening within pop culture. Beauty, I submit to you, is not gratuitous violence. Beauty is not sexual exploitation. It can't be found where there is no light. Brothers and sisters, beauty comes from light. 
And remember, where there is no light, the enemy is at work. He lives in the dark. He's a dealer in gloom and despair, which is why he doesn't want light. He doesn't want beauty, true beauty through the arts, because beauty would, like we saw with John Preston, it would evoke love. It would evoke forgiveness. It would evoke passion. It would evoke wonder and transcendency and a hopeful realism about the future of God's good world. Don't you know we need that today? Can I get an amen? We need that today. And so we must remember who we are as children of the light. We are worshipers of a beautiful God who makes beautiful things. And he wants us to do the same so that we can lead others to the God who looks like Jesus and who is beautiful. And from the catacombs in Rome where we Christians first did our art, to the cathedrals in France, to the icons of Eastern Orthodoxy, to the art galleries of modern churches, including our own, beauty making continues to be central to our calling as disciples of Jesus. Yes, I know there have been several icon bashing movements throughout the church history. If we're honest, the Protestant Reformation did much to remove, even destroy icons, art, and beauty in the church. I mean, that may seem odd to you that you could go to some places and find art in a church or cathedral and not just in a museum, but that's where art was first housed. We're in these places. Think about it. As Malcolm Miller said, the clearest sign that a reform movement has gone bad is when people start destroying beautiful things. Mm. You see, whether it was an overzealous concern about idolatry, right? So we, we, we stop at the beauty itself. I think this is what happens, right? This is how it becomes an idol is when we, we stop at the, at the beauty itself. We stop at the art. We start with the film. We, st- we stop with the, the poetry. We don't see it as a signpost pointing us to the transcendent. Yeah, it can become an idol. But we mustn't overreact. We must see it as a way, as a signpost that points us to the beautiful God. And so whether it was this overzealous concern with idolatry or a desire for simplicity, that's a reason some give, or the post-enlightenment's emphasis on logic and rationality and, and it's just all about efficiency and art isn't efficient. You see, Protestantism largely went along with the post-enlightenment industrial culture when it pushed art in the signpost of beauty to the fringes. I think we can still see this in public education. We can see it happening there. We see it happening with architecture. We're not concerned with beauty. We just want efficiency and we want to make money and we want to make it now. And beauty is lost. Sometimes this happens even in our churches. And in doing so, many churches have missed out. I submit to you, they've missed out on the power that beauty has to lead us home to an encounter with God. But you see, there have always been those who've called us to behold His glory through the arts. There's a growing number of churches that are seeking to do this today, including, as I said, our own congregation. So think about this. What if it's time to see beauty as a way for people to encounter God? Possibly a better way to evangelize an American culture today. 
to invite people to gaze upon the glory and the beauty of God through creation, through art, through literature, film, dance, music, architecture, and whatever else has the creative potential of shining the light, of touching the soul and turning weary eyes upon Christ. I think it's time. In his book, Beauty Will Save the World, Brian Zahn says, to a skeptical world, we are generally more accustomed to defend Christianity in terms of its truth and its goodness, right? But beauty also belongs to the Christian faith. And beauty has a way of sneaking past defenses and speaking in unique ways to a generation suspicious of truth claims and unconvinced by our moral assertions. Beauty has a surprising allure. And everything about Jesus Christ is beautiful. His life, his miracles, his grace, his teaching, even his death and certainly his resurrection are beautiful. A Christianity that is deeply enchanted by Christ's beauty and thus formed and fashioned by this beauty has the opportunity to present to a skeptical and jaded world an aspect of the gospel that has been too rare for far too long where truth and goodness fail to win an audience, beauty may once again captivate and draw those it enchants into the kingdom of saving grace. Mm. Brothers and sisters, there is a broken signpost called beauty. May the Spirit help us to see that its fulfillment is found in Christ. Amen. Finally, I'd like to close this message. Instead of questions this week, I'd rather like to invite us into practicing the presence of God together through art and contemplative prayer. One of the scripture readings for today is John chapter 11. And there in John chapter 11, we read the scene of Jesus coming to a friend's funeral a few days late. And Jesus weeps there with his friends and soon after raises Lazarus from the dead. Beauty from ashes, you could say. N.T. Wright says that John wants to invite us to see that the beauty of the entire scene here in John 11 is the powerful promise of life bursting into a world still framed by death. So we're gonna do some sacred scene this morning and, and allow God to use the art in our lives. Let's enter into this spiritual exercise, brothers and sisters, and let's listen for the voice of God, and then we'll respond together. You to engage in the ancient Benedictine practice of prayer called Visio Divina, or divine seeing. To begin, I invite you to center yourself by taking a deep breath in and relaxing your body as best you can. Allow your shoulders to lower away from your ears. Let your arms rest in your lap and let your feet be fully supported by the floor. 
feel the weight of your body held by your chair. Breathe deeply once again. Let us listen for what God has to say to us in John chapter 11, verses 32 through 44. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I invite you to return to your breaths. Spend this time in quiet as I offer prompts for silent reflection. Open yourself to God's voice. First, simply read the image, observing the colors, the shapes, composition, and textures. Now, take a deeper look. What parts of the image are your eyes immediately drawn to? And what parts of the image did you quickly brush by or overlook? And now, use your imagination. If you could put yourself in this scene, where would you be and why? And now a reflection from the artist. 
I image Jesus in sorrowful hues, tearfully employing his friend to come out while the crowd bears down on his shoulders. Perhaps things got too real. Did he feel the creeping chills of his own fate while standing at the mouth of the tomb? Did he feel responsible? No matter our vocation, we can find comfort that even Jesus felt overwhelmed by the gravity of his call. When we stumble under this great weight, God strains and weeps with us, but also longs for us to be set free from the pressure. God accompanies us with open hands, ready to unbind us as we learn to lean in confidence on God's provision. We've got to be unbound in order to release others from that which keeps us in spiritual death, that with which obscures and steals abundant life. <laughs>